0: It's time for Cadillac On Call on News Radio 610-KONA. It's your chance to learn valuable health information right here in our community. Now, the host of Cadillac On Call, here's Jim Hall. Hello, friends. Welcome to Cadillac On Call presented by the Cadillac Foundation. And as we come on the air today, we are midway through the month of June, June 15th to be precise. We are one day into school out being for the summer. And so with that, uh, we want to spend the first half hour of our program tonight getting you caught up with the latest on COVID-19 as we go through the summer season. Uh, The numbers are showing a little bit of an increase, but we want to make sure and provide you the most appropriate context and what we should all be adhering to as we get ready to enjoy the the summertime here in our community. And with us, as she has been for many of the past uh, several weeks over the past two years, is Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. And, Heather, I I know that the numbers are going up. Maybe just first of all, give us a brief overview of where things stand.
1: Sure. When we compare um, what's happened, say, the first part of June, you know, our data today is from uh, the 1st of June through the 7th of June. uh, We are seeing a a 32, almost 33 percent increase in our, our confirmed PCR testing from the previous um, week's count. So unfortunately, that, that is quite a jump up. Um, so we are trending in the wrong direction. Uh, Benton County uh, had a 28.51% increase and Franklin County actually had a big jump of 44.2% to 6% increase. So, you know, unfortunately, we are seeing quite a an interesting jump, but then we have to look at the activities that have been happening, uh, Memorial Day, graduations, Mother's Day, we're heading into Father's Day. All of these um, type of events certainly do give us a lot of opportunity if we're not careful to, to spread COVID. You know, we're also seeing a real slight uptick in in the inpatient beds that are occupied by by people with COVID. So, again, hospitals are by no means stressed right now, but we we need to be vigilant, and we've talked a lot about using all the different data points to really get a good picture of what is going on in our community, and I go back to that wastewater testing, and that's where we've certainly seen an increase in this last testing cycle uh, that indicates, yep, we are seeing a fair amount of virus detected in those wastewater samples, which are indicating that we're spiking up. And wastewater is such a good indicator because it it, it not only collects information from people who might be symptomatic, but people who are asymptomatic and shedding the virus into the system. So it gives us a really good idea of kind of trending up or trending down as a community. And what the wastewater is telling us as a community our rate is trending up. So again, heading in the wrong direction. We know that when wastewater starts to trend up with with the amount detected, Soon thereafter, the hospitalizations will start to increase, and that is if you look at our two lines that follow wastewater and hospitalizations. Yep, they are both starting to head back up, with wastewater spiking quite substantially recently.
0: And as you discussed, you mentioned the holidays that we've and the special occasions that we have just experienced. The data that you were addressing was the first week in June, and of course uh, Memorial Day was the week before that. So we may not have seen the full effects of what, of what the Memorial Day holiday has brought. And then, of course, as you touched on, Father's Day and the like is, is coming up. So it, it probably wouldn't be a surprise to see these numbers to can, continue to go up a little bit. But relative to where we've been throughout this pandemic, it's still uh, in a manageable state.
1: Yeah, that's exactly the point we need to look at is we've been certainly in significantly worse situation in this community, but I also don't want people to let their guard down and end up exposed needlessly, and that's why we still are really encouraging people to consider all those mitigation strategies we've talked about, and especially the the importance of vaccine And keeping up to date on your vaccines. And if you qualify for a booster, get a booster. You know, we've seen, unfortunately, time and time again, where some severe illness has happened in people who, yeah, they got their primary doses of vaccine, but they just didn't get around to getting that booster. And then they caught COVID and they got a pretty severe case that knocked them out for a week or two. You know, the good thing is vaccinations does help prevent death. But you can still get very, very ill uh, from this, especially if you're not keeping up with your boosters and keeping your immunity up as good as possible.
0: And interestingly, as you touched on the the point of people that are getting COVID, whether they've been boosted or even double boosted, depending upon where they are in the series of, of vaccinations, it's not going to totally eliminate and eliminate that you're going to get the virus. And, and I was interesting reading the other day a story that said there an, a, a rising number of people getting COVID for the first time. And why is that? And I'm kind of going, well, you know, people are just not, you know, they're not as vigilant as they were, you know, when, when the numbers were so much higher.
1: Right. We're getting a little more complacent. We're all relaxing. We've been through a really tough two years. And it feels good not to have those restrictions, but unfortunately, as you know, COVID continues to swirl in our communities and our nation. We're going to see um, the numbers increase, and, and we're going to continue to see severe illness in some people. And unfortunately, we're still having people die from COVID, and that's where. The vaccination is so extremely important and keeping up on your vaccine. Again, like you say, it may not stop you from becoming ill, but it is certainly going to very, very likely stop you from dying from from this infection.
0: And you touched on people that are they are still dying. Your data is showing that certainly. And, and, and I know your concern, even as these numbers have started to edge back up. The primary population is in some of these facilities where there are older people living, and obviously just in general, that population and those who are most vulnerable.
1: Right. We're still seeing outbreaks in some of the long-term care facilities, seeing a little flurry of activity in the school-age population, the child care center population. So we know any time we get groups together where we have vulnerable people, If COVID gets in there, it can be pretty devastating, especially for those seniors who, even with vaccination on board, can get pretty ill because the older we get, the less immune response we have from vaccines. So we want to vaccinate them, give them all the immunity we possibly can, but then we also need to be careful not to needlessly expose these people and and let down our guard. That's why when we go to visit, We need to be very vigilant that we're not taking organisms, diseases into these facilities because they are so very vulnerable.
0: And a quick aside from that, is the flu flu, uh, hitting pretty hard right now? I've, I've just heard anecdotally stories of people that said, oh, my gosh, I've got the flu, and it's serious.
1: Yes, there is definitely um, indication that a rather unpleasant strain of the flu is going through our community as well. And that's where if you feel like you're ill with a respiratory illness, it's a real good idea to get tested. Is it the flu? Is it COVID? Is it one of the many other respiratory viruses that are obviously circulating in our community so that you get the right treatment for the right disease? Um, Don't assume that what you have is covid Get tested and find out exactly what you have.
0: And as you have said along, I know you're adjusting some of the PCR testing or the, the, the lab testing, can more to just the CBC side in West in Pasco out by Columbia Basin College. But people should just they have access to these these home tests, that, which it's almost like needs to be your your social protocol in some cases before you're especially if you're going to be uh, interacting with older folks.
1: Right. If you're going to go visit a very vulnerable person, make sure that you're doing one of those rapid antigen tests before you go, because that's going to give you a good indication right then and there if you have enough, um, if there's virus in there that could potentially expose that vulnerable person. So I I think keeping a stash of the home rapid antigen tests is a really prudent thing to do and use them at those times where you want to just Be as safe as possible and not expose people.
0: Visiting with Heather Hill at the Benton Franklin Health District. When we come back with Heather, we want to talk a little bit more about vaccines. And certainly there's some news out today as we're speaking that it soon will be available to get vaccinated your youngest of our population. We'll talk more with Heather right after this. Welcome back to Catholic Uncall, presented by the Catholic Foundation, visiting with Heather Hill at the Benton Franklin Health District. And before we get into some vaccine discussion, Heather, I'd like to have you, if you would, just take a moment and talk a little bit about if someone gets COVID or tests positive for COVID, what is the protocol they should follow?
1: Oh, you betcha. Um, You know, if you were exposed to COVID and you're not up to date with your vaccine, then you need to quarantine for five days. You need to stay home, stay away from others, wear a well fitted mask. If you are going to be coming in contact with others, particularly those in your home, you don't want to expose them if at all possible. And um, if you develop symptoms, by all means, get tested. And then um, after the five days, if you don't start getting symptoms, you still need to take precautions for another 10 days while you're out and about again. So we're, we're still wanting people to be very, very cautious. And if they have that exposure risk, there are really good guidelines like some of what I've just described on the Center for Disease Control website exactly spelling out what you should do and for how long. Because that is one of the big mitigation strategies that we will need to take seriously probably for some time to come. And it's just good respiratory hygiene. It's when you're not well. You want to do what is best not to expose other people. And it really depends on the scenarios of whether you've been vaccinated or unvaccinated. If you've had disease in the last 90 days, if you're exposed, you're much less likely to catch it. But you still need to be very conscientious about symptoms. And and there are times when, yes, you really should be staying home in quarantine. And yes, you should continue to wear a mask when you're around others.
0: We have touched on COVID vaccine and or COVID fatigue in general, but I know even as it relates to vaccines, people may be getting a little bit tired of hearing the things of getting vaccinated and things of that nature. But as we're on the air in mid June this evening, uh, we we know that the CDC and pretty, very soon the youngest age groups of our population. Uh, will soon be eligible to get a vaccination. Talk a little bit about that and provide some context to parents out there who have kids in this, you know, gosh, what is it, six months to age five, which would be the latest group to be eligible to get vaccinated.
1: Right. We've had parents really watching and hoping that this would happen quickly. But we know that The study that went into both the vaccine Moderna and Pfizer was done very carefully because when you're looking at vaccines and what dosage to give, you want to give the smallest dose possible that elicits the best immune response to protect from, you know, certainly disease, but more important, severe disease and death. And so it took a bit longer for these vaccine companies to really come up with what is the best dose to prevent the worst situation for these little kiddos. And so the FDA advisory committee did recommend granting emergency use authorization for both the Moderna and the Pfizer for the young kids. And again, you know, the terminology emergency use authorization does sound kind of ominous, but just like with the previous vaccines that came on the market, that's really um, a, a time situation. The vaccines have gone through all the testing, all the studies, they have been found to be safe, they've been found to work, but they can't have authorization, regular authorization, for a certain period of time. And so all these vaccines have been rolled out with emergency use authorization, then after a period of time it does flip over into regular authorization, if, if you, you know, want to call it that, Um But then this weekend, on Friday and Saturday, the CDC will be holding meetings, and they will be looking at the data on both the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine, and it's very likely that they will make a decision to approve vaccine for these age groups as well. So then the next decision is for the the families of these children, do we vaccinate or don't we vaccinate? And, you know, if you're concerned, this is certainly a conversation to have with your pediatrician. We do see children, unfortunately, the young ones do become quite severely ill at times with COVID. We've seen bad cases of pneumonia. Kids do die from COVID. And if we have a vaccine that can help prevent that, I mean, that that is the best option for these little kids right now. And so Moderna is actually going to come out as a two-dose series for children six months through five years old, and the shots are given four weeks apart. And the dose is actually a quarter of what is given to adults. So again, they want the smallest amount of vaccine possible to elicit the best immune response. With Pfizer, it's actually a three-dose regimen for kids six months to four years old. With the first two shots given three weeks apart, followed by a third dose at least two months later. And the Pfizer vaccine is actually one-tenth the dose that's usually given to adults. Both of these vaccines showed really good efficacy in stopping severe illness. But again, just like with the adult and the older kid vaccine, it does not 100% stop your child from catching covid but it does show very, very good efficacy in stopping severe illness and death if you catch COVID.
0: And, and I guess as we go down to this youngest of, uh, of all of us, I know the most recent age group was what, age five to 12. Is there any reason? I know people, even parents of those kids' age group, were some were skeptical. Have we seen that there was any worry about getting your kids vaccinate, vaccinated at those ages?
1: You know, I'm I'm sure as with all vaccines that come out on the market, parents have differing opinions, and that's why we really encourage parents to talk to those trusted medical professions in their children's lives. If you're going to, you know, use the internet for information, make sure that you are using sites that actually have good scientific peer-reviewed studied evidence to support what they're saying. And then you as a family need to make the decision that's best for you and your child. And remembering um, children are a bit of shedders and spreaders themselves. So if we can help stop kids from getting this, then others in the family may be less likely, especially exposing maybe grandma, grandpa. Um, if all the family, including the youngins, are, are, are vaccinated, then we're going to see less COVID disease within that family.
0: So as we conclude here in mid June, uh, getting ready to enjoy the summer season, numbers are going up. Um, what's your level? What's your what's your takeaway message? What's your context for people to understand as we're getting ready to enjoy the summertime?
1: I think it's really time for us to enjoy the summer, enjoy being out in the in the sun and the fresh air. But again, as we've said, COVID is going to get worse at times. It's going to get less at times, and we just need to be vigilant, watch the data, watch what's happening in community trends, and then bring back those mitigation strategies that we've been talking about for two and a half years and make them part of of your normal respiratory hygiene, whether it be COVID prevention, common cold prevention, or influenza prevention.
0: So as uh, we get ready to enjoy this summertime, uh, and I know maybe we just have a minute or so left, a quick comment on, a, you know, we've, we've been periodically addressing some of the other public health measures uh, that we need to be aware of during the summertime years. But I know uh, and that's a whole other topic, but cooking and things of that nature, just, just read up on it. Is that kind of the whole advice in all of this? It's just, you know, research and, 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 and don't presume.
1: Right. Go to those good websites. You know, please come to our website. We have a lot of good information. The Center for Disease Control certainly does. Washington State Department of Health. And we really try to give people information that is applicable to our community and what types of situations are happening in our community, whether it be algae in, you know, the water in the river or it be, you know, the sudden increase in people concerned about exposure to ticks. Um, lots of good information. And that's what public health is here for, is to help you find the information you need so that you are comfortable with how you get out and about and enjoy our wonderful outdoors
0: here. that website is bfhd.wa.gov. Our thanks to Heather Hill from the Benton Franklin Health District, back for the second half of Catholic on Call right after this.
2: Welcome back to
0: Catholic on Call, presented by the Catholic Foundation. And if you missed any part of our program, you can listen to Catholic on Call via your favorite podcast platform. Just Google Catholic on Call, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And, you know, would you know the warning signs of stroke if all of a sudden uh, you started to feel uh, some symptoms? Uh, We want to make sure that you do. And with us tonight is Kaylin Wyatt, who is the Stroke Coordinator at Catholic Regional Medical Center. She's also a nurse by training, and we're really trying to focus at Cadillac uh, throughout the month of May and all throughout the year to make sure our community and our listeners, uh, especially to this program, are aware of the warning signs of stroke. And Kaylin is with us tonight, and thanks for taking the time to be with us, Kaylin, and maybe... Just an introductory comment about what is the stroke is a, is a very uh, common, sadly, but it's also uh, something, something that we need to take very seriously, correct?
3: Yeah, hi, Jim, and thank you for having me on tonight. Um, You are correct. Stroke actually happens more than we would like to think. Um, About 800,000 people in the United States have a stroke every year, and of those, um, about 185,000 strokes are new to somebody who has never experienced the symptoms. So um, it is something that, you know, one in four people who have had a previous stroke could end up having another and um, so it's, it's very prevalent. It's something that we, we take seriously at the hospital and work really hard to set up um, things, guidelines, different routes, um, and work with different agencies in the area to make sure that we are, are taking care of our, our community.
0: Well, let's jump in. I know you have some, some acronym words that, that are, are, are quite helpful to help us all uh, try and remember what these symptoms are, but walk through them if you could uh, for us.
3: Uh, the acronym that we use, um, EMS in the area as well as the hospital to recognize the stroke, is BFAST. It's um, B is for balance. So if you have balance instability um, or difficulty walking, E is for eyes, um, any loss of vision in one eye or blurred vision. F is for face, so facial drooping. Um, A is for arms and legs. So if you had numbness or tingling or um, loss of of the use of an arm or a leg on one side or the other, S is for speech and that is um, if you have trouble speaking or understanding speech. And T is time, because we really need to call emergency services as quickly as possible to try and get some help for that person.
0: Uh, Let's kind of work our way through those each, uh, if we could, uh, and we'll end with time, because I wanted to focus on on the ones that you described earlier on, it's certainly the people that are suffering them can notice them but is it just as important for whoever's around them to observe these uh symptoms that you just described
3: yeah absolutely when you are around someone they may be confused if they're going if they're experiencing a stroke um, being aware of these different signs and symptoms of stroke is a way to help those that you love, anybody that you see out in the community because um, again it is it 's imperative that we get that person assistance as quickly as possible. So you could start, um, you know, sitting down to have dinner and hear your grandparent or your parent um, begin to have difficulty communicating and and then go through those different um, neurologic signs or symptoms to see if they have other things that are going on. Um, And they're new, they're new onset. So it's a change in behavior of that person.
0: And you mentioned that to act on them, what does that mean? Does that mean call 911 and, and get the experts to your home or wherever you're suffering these symptoms?
3: Absolutely. We you know, really want them to have that um, immediate medical attention. And we work closely with agencies to ensure that they are able to respond and evaluate a stroke out in the field. Um, but another reason for us to call 911 is that they can call us ahead and call into the emergency department. And when that happens, it sets up a series of events where we have a team that comes together at the hospital and um, clears out the head imaging area. Um, It allows our emergency workers to bring somebody directly back to the CT scanner. Um, It allows us to get the medication that we need and and to screen that person to see if they are eligible to get that medication to help break up a clot.
0: If you would, when someone... I, maybe in our final segment, we're going to visit with our friends from Emergency Management Services in Richland. But if you would, when someone gets to the hospital, when the ambulances arrive at the hospital, walk us through what that, what kind of treatment, and you, you touched on CT scans. Is 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 that the preferred mode of imaging that helps uh, helps in the treatment and diagnosis process?
3: you know it is um and one of the things that we're looking at that is um about 87% of patients that come in with these signs and symptoms is experiencing what we call an ischemic stroke and that's when a blood clot has traveled up to the brain and it's actually preventing blood flow to a different part of the brain. And um, so the other part of that is a hemorrhagic stroke where they could be experiencing bleeding in the brain. And so we need to know which of those um, that we're, we're dealing with so that we can, in, you know, in essence, treat that patient appropriately um, and make sure that they either can get the medication and, um, our, and, and you mentioned, you know, what happens when, our emergency services shows up, um, they do some of that screening out in the field. They'll ask questions about medications that someone's been on. They'll evaluate blood pressures and blood sugar for us. Um, and they also help look at blood pressure and um, see whether or not somebody is in a good position to get the medication that they need. Or if they have a, a, a bleed in their brain, if that CT scan shows us that it's a bleed, and then we really need to know that so that we, we don't they get excluded from getting that medication.
0: So a lot of work goes into this, and I know Cadillac just received a, a renewed accreditation from a national accrediting body. Just talk about the significance of what that means to have that seal of approval, if you will.
3: Well, that is um, what, what we call a primary stroke certification, and that's provided to us from the Joint Commission or an accrediting body that we look to to set a gold standard for care in stroke. Um, and once we... Uh, Get that certification. You know, we've worked very hard to maintain that for several years, and um, we actually hold on to it for three years after that certification's received. And it gives us additional ability to apply to. be a stroke level two center for the Department of Health. And so it it helps um, emergency services know what type of um, care we provide. It really sets a, like I said, a a gold standard that we are looking at the best practice advisories that are out there um, and following the best practice advisories to ensure that our policies, our guidelines at the hospital are in alignment with those.
0: Before we let you go, I'd like to have you talk to us, if you would, just You know, you talked about the incredible amount of teamwork that's required, uh, certainly within the hospital, the, the fire and emergency services, but the listeners to this program can be heard all throughout eastern Washington and northern Oregon, and so that's a a quite a wide geography but but if you would talk a little bit about the importance of these relationships with some of the smaller outlying hospitals that don't necessarily have the specialty ability to treat but they certainly play a key role uh, when a stroke patient comes into their emergency departments
3: absolutely i mean and in the scheme of things, we really just need somebody to be evaluated and to get that, that conceptually to know what we're dealing with um, out in in those outlying areas. And, and there are a lot of smaller locations or what we call critical access hospitals that are able to administer the clot-busting drug or um, and and then once that's completed, they can transfer to Cadillac for that higher level of care that we provide and monitoring those individuals, um, and then you know completing those neurologic reviews with the patient over a period of time to make sure that um, that they are receiving the care that they really need, and um, and the goal truly is to get. Keep people close to home. You know, We want to be able to service this area, um, our entire region. Um, we want to do that effectively and provide the best care possible and, and keep people close to home um, as much as we can.
0: Well, congratulations to you and the entire team. I know that there's a lot of work that goes into maintaining and earning and, and building on these these types of accreditations. And the bottom line, that's a great comfort to uh, members of our community. Kaylin Wyatt, the stroke coordinator at Catholic Regional Medical Center, thanks so much for your time. Back with our remaining minutes of Catholic on call. And in our ongoing efforts to make sure you're all aware of the warning signs and symptoms of stroke, we're happy to have with us Captain Andy Sabin, who is with the Richland Fire and Emergency Services Department, a key, key partner uh, with hospitals like Cadillac to be able to provide emergency treatment for not only stroke, but heart attack and other types of trauma and, and just medical services that, that require Uh, emergency care. So Captain Andy Sabin, thanks for taking a minute to be with us tonight. Maybe just in a a minute, if you would begin with, talk about the role that you and your colleagues play relative to our topic of stroke.
4: Yeah, thanks thanks for having me on tonight. We we provide emergency service for um, Richland specific, but Tri-Cities too. And um, when we are looking at treating people for stroke, uh, time is one of the most important things. That's what we try to focus on. And Kaylin did a a great job of kind of outlining, you know, the signs and symptoms of a stroke. And those are things that we're trained at to look for. And um, we we really focus on getting those people to the hospital as quickly as possible. And I think the the most important part that I want to drive home to people tonight is that when we are, are called to somebody who suspects they might be having a stroke, we can, we can get the ball rolling um, in partnership with the hospital. So we can call ahead, we can activate a stroke team, and they can start preparing for that patient uh, before they even get there versus having somebody um, be driven down to the hospital themselves and they just show up on the front door. And they're kind of behind the A ball on those things.
0: So you can activate, obviously, through communication means to with the hospital and, and the team there. But what, from a, from a treatment diagnostic perspective, do you do in the field? Can you do while you're uh, preparing that patient to be transported?
4: Yeah, we can, we can begin treatment and kind of do some of the things that the hospital needs uh, before they can uh, take that patient to the CT. So we can get started with taking blood pressures. We can uh, evaluate those blood pressures and see if we can do anything to, to lower those if they're too high. Uh, we can um, establish IV access so we can give any medications that that patient may need. Um, we can do, um, in the cases of severe stroke where a patient's not able to uh, maintain their own airway, we can, we can take care of that for them. And those are all things that that patient needs to be stabilized before they can kind of begin that first treatment
0: um, at the hospital. If you wouldn't, I don't mean to put you on the spot with with a a question like this, but I know all of the communities and using the Tri-Cities, the three main communities in the Tri-Cities, for example, I know you have, your your teams are strategically placed, and for your case out in Richland, in general, how soon can you get? To, can a crew get to somebody's home? Just a matter of a couple of minutes in most cases, because of where you, the proximity to where uh, you, you and your colleagues are located throughout Richland, for example.
4: Yeah, Richland specific. We we just opened our fifth station last year, and those are placed. So, we're our goal and a gold standard is to be able to uh, be to a patient when we get dispatched within four minutes. Um, so most of the time we can, we can hit that number. A lot of times we can get there quicker. Uh, the only time that we, we do exceed those times is if um, your first due station is out on another call and it has to be covered by another station. But, again, those are, those are things that are planned way in advance uh, with population growth, with the way the city is developing, that we put those stations and the second due stations in places where we can um, get to those people as soon as possible.
0: And I know it's also the case in the treatment of heart attack, these same numbers and the, the, the quick response is, is, is required. And I know that's all measured. I think that in the hospital terminology, you touched on your goal is to get to a home within four minutes. But I think uh, there's also standards of, of how long they can administer treatment in many cases uh, for these types of patients. So again, there's a lot of teamwork at play
4: yeah absolutely we um stroke specific we we can actually um, do our um, treatment and evaluation in the field and if those stroke symptoms have began within twenty four hours, we can still call ahead to the hospital and activate a stroke team and it's up to them to to decide the treatment from there but we we want people to call us early if they they think they're having a problem um, we don't want their misconceptions to get in the way. So let, let us be the deciding factor, and we can call ahead to the hospital and get that, that ball rolling.
0: And I know this has been hampered into me over the years is don't drive yourself.
4: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I would go even further and say don't have a family member or friend drive you either. Um, like I said, there's things that we can do to get, get ahead of the game and um especially if a lot of people that do experience strokes they can have uh what's called a TIA where it's almost like stroke symptoms and then they disappear but they can they can come back so if a person like that got into the vehicle cuz they kind of felt better those symptoms could still come on again and then it could cause um who knows another accident or uh something even worse but yeah definitely don't don't drive yourself and call 911 and let us let us serve the community.
0: I have just a minute or so left, and I'd like you to broaden your final answer to address. Uh, every week, in my mind, should be National EMS Week, given the performance of emergency responders uh, throughout the past two and a half years with the pandemic. But as you and your colleagues celebrate this kind of week and, and, and acknowledge the work that you and first responders all throughout the country do. Maybe just a, a shout out to, to people in your line of work about what it's been like the last year, couple of years, and and, and where you are uh, mentally, and I guess w- why you do what you do.
4: Yeah, absolutely. We're, you know, we're honored to to do what we do. And every one of us that are in the fire service and EMS world, um, we we come to work and we're ready to take on whatever it is that comes our way. And pandemic aside um we that was just another thing that came onto the the scene in our plate that that we had to learn how to do and we adapted very quickly and um we we just learned to cope with what it was and we we're always going to risk ourselves to to help other people and that's that's something that is pretty admirable and we we're happy to do it and the uh, the fact that we have a, a week to, dedicated to celebrating our service is, is pretty cool, but um, that's that's not why we do it, and we're we're happy to serve.
0: Well, on behalf of everybody listening to this program, please pass along our thanks to all of your colleagues that uh, are there all the time, and it's 24-7. Captain Andy Sabin with the Richland Fire and Emergency Services, talking stroke and National EMS Week. Uh, Andy, thanks for taking the time to be with us, and thanks all of you for listening. We'll talk again next week.